This is I Was There, gigs that change the world. The headlines tonight. I'd seen this thing on TV. At Christmas time, what happens? Well, we've got this cornucopia, and eight miles south of our continent, the richest, is 30 million people dying this Christmas, quite literally, because they have nothing. That's ridiculous. That really is stupid. I wrote the first part in a taxi, and then I went over to Midge's, and we sat down and faced each other, and I had this Christmas time. There's no need to be afraid. As a musician, if we'd sold 100,000, it would have been a charity record. When everyone's watching Top of the Pops, when every single station and every DJ on all the shows are playing Do They Know It's Christmas? And 8 million people buy the bloody thing. Well, as I say, numbers are politics. They cannot ignore it. Episode 1, Live Aid, July 13th, 1985. Hi, I'm Harvey Goldsmith. I'm a promoter, producer, and was there at Live Aid running it all. Most people were aware that Bob and Midge had got together to write Do They Know It's Christmas as a result of the dreadful news pictures that we were looking at of people starving in Africa, whereas the uh, debate of the day was what to do with butter and fruit mountains in Europe, which didn't make any sense. So Bob and Midge wrote the song, became a number one smash over Christmas, and it raised just under £8 million, I believe. Bob went to Africa. When he got there, he realised that if they were going to have any meaningful results with getting people to focus on Africa, he'd have to do a lot more. And so slowly but surely he came up with the idea of doing a concert. Bob Geldof. The record had been so huge. And then I went and did USA for Africa with the American artist. And that's a massive hit. Then it's not difficult to say to them, Why don't we just do this as a concert? And by that time, pop music was the lingua franca of the planet, not English, pop music. And I did know that everyone was looking at or listening to a version of pop music. MTV had just started. I just thought then logically there must be enough satellites that we can use this common language to talk to everyone. I knew Bob because I promoted the uh, Boomtown Rats. He contacted me and I was in the middle of pop mayhem at the time. I was going to take the first Western pop group to China, which was Wang. And when Bob called me and said, look, we want to do this concert, I said, look, I can't even think about it till I get back from China and contact me when I got back which he did literally the first day back in the office and said, look, we've got to do this concert and I need your help. I'd seen those pictures on the news. I'd obviously read all the press. I knew all about it and I thought, okay, let's do it. Paul Gambaccini. Early in the year, Bob Geldof said to me he'd been talking with Harvey Goldsmith, the famous rock promoter, and that they were going to do Band-Aid live and would call it the Global Jukebox. Well, with the exception of what they called it, because it ended up being called Live Aid, 
they basically did do it live. And what I didn't realize when he'd spoken to me was that I would be a part of it as part of the broadcasting team. This was just literally drop everything and make this work. The only problem was it was about ten and a half weeks before the event. Skinner here talking to you live from Wembley Stadium, where a very important announcement is about to be made. I was never worried about the artists because I knew they'd come in eventually, but it wasn't really until we finally felt confident enough to announce the show publicly and put tickets on sale that we started to home in on the artists. And that was about, I guess, eight weeks from the event. Good morning, everybody. Um... I'm very pleased to announce Band-Aid start the second part of their programme by announcing Live Aid. We decided to have a press conference and we decided to have it at Wembley Stadium. I think there were over 400 press people from all over the world there. At that point in time, we only had one band signed and that was called the Boomtown Rats. That was it. We all sat down at kind of top table all along this line and then Bob got up and literally rattled off a list of the biggest acts in the world and said they're all playing. The people taking part in alphabetical order will be Brian Adams, Adamant, the Boomtown Rats, David Bowie. The only thing he forgot to do was ask them. During the actual press conference there were acts phoning up saying we, we've just heard about this and you know what's going on, what's happening, <laughs> no idea. And it was literally, the assumption was that once he'd announced those acts, they'd all play. And actually, that's what happened. I mean, in retrospect, it was a summing up of everyone that had sort of been around up to that point, really, if you like. There was a representative of every period of music, because there isn't anyone who's missing, I don't think. So, as a moment, part of me thought... This is actually the promise of rock and roll fulfilled. And about five minutes ago, we heard some wonderful news, and that is that The Who, one of the greatest bands ever in rock music, are reforming specifically for this event. And then as we were developing along towards the day of the show, other acts were coming in. David Bowie was unbelievable, so was Mick Jagger. The Who agreed to reform. They hadn't played together for about five years. Led Zeppelin agreed to put a, some kind of band together, and on it went. And I tried to get Phil Collins to do it, and I finally called Tony Smith one Friday afternoon. He said, well, he doesn't really want to do it. There's so many people, you don't need him. I said, yes, we do. He called me back and he said, well, I thought about it. I talked to Phil. He kind of said he, he'll do it, but he wants to do something different. And he said, well, he'd like to play both shows. I said, what, London and Philadelphia? He said, yeah, he'd like to do them both. He's thinking that'll get rid of Harvey. And it was that point, I was a bit like we were walking on water. And I said, oh, OK, that sounds like a great idea. Put the phone down. <laughs> I phoned up uh, British Airways. I spoke to their press office. I said, I've got a fantastic scoop for you. I said, look, I filled the plane up with press. If you can reorganise the schedule slightly, because Phil Collins will get on the plane, he's going to play at Wembley Stadium, and then we need to get him to Philadelphia. 
and they loved the idea. They thought it was absolutely brilliant. So it just happened. So even that worked. The night before, all the time I was thinking I'd bitten off far more than I could chew. Remember, I had no contracts with anyone, no one, with Wembley, with the staging, with the roadies, with the lighting, with the television, with the bands, nothing. So, you know, part of me were thinking 17 hours of the Boomtown Rats, that might even be a bit much for me. So who is going to show up? Would it work? Would anybody watch? Would we make enough money to stop as many people as possible dying of starvation? So you see, for me, it was all an organizational continuum. It wasn't excitement, it was fear. The night before was very, very fraught. I got a call about eight o'clock in the evening on the Friday from my production manager who said the crew are exhausted and the turntable stage packed up. So I thought, oh, I have to go down. I went down to Wembley and I could see the whole crew were pretty wrecked. And I said, look, even if you've all got to get under this stage and push the bloody thing around, we've got to make it work. Anyway, everybody got together. We all got under the stage and finally got the stage working. So that was great. And I sent out for some more beers for everybody. And I thought, that's it, I can go home. I got home about 11 o'clock and the phone rang and it was the head of one of the biggest record companies in the world who said, because ABC TV had agreed to only give us a two hour broadcast on network television in America, said, if you don't get my act on the broadcast, I'm going to pull Tina Turner, I'm going to pull Mick Jagger and I'm going to pull David Bowie. And I said, okay, feel free. And that was, it was like that. I finally got to sleep at about three in the morning. And like a lot of that period, I had cold sweat. I thought that was a metaphor for fear. I didn't understand that you actually sweated cold. And I had towels underneath me to absorb the fear, the sweat. The Live Aid concert will be seen by more than one billion people worldwide. I got up and as I walked out on this beautiful morning, as I walked down the street, every single window was open in the early morning heat and every single radio was tuned to, we're two hours away, we're this, we're that. And an estimated audience of a billion and a half people is pretty nerve-wracking. I was crapping. And I saw people putting their tellies out on the lawn. Dad's trying to get cable flexes to come out that far and setting up picnics. And people shouted out the window, good luck, Bob. It was mad. It was like some movie I was in. Live Aid from London. And here's another Live Aid update. I think the best part of the whole of Live Aid for me was the day. It was one of the most glorious days of the whole summer. It was obviously meant to be and that was a great sign for me that everything was going to start working it was amazing and there wasn't anybody that was late everybody was waiting in the wings ready to go and it just had that air of anticipation and excitement about it it's 12 noon in london 7 a.m in philadelphia and around the world it's time for live aid i mean how do you start this off it's it's meaningless there's no top of the bill What's top of the bill when you've got everyone? So it was trying to structure the gig in a way that had an emotional dynamic. That was the thing. I mean, who put David Bowie on in broad daylight? You know, David Bowie, excuse me, you know? And Harvey Goldsmith was saying, who do we start off with? 
And we needed a big bang, you know. And without thinking, I'd asked Quo to kick it off. I suppose because rocking all over the world, that song, that we chose them. That was it. And now, to start the 16 hours of Live Aid, would you welcome Status Quo? But then I walk out with Charles and Diana onto the balcony and the place is kicking off and Quo come on. And I mean, it could not be more perfect rock and roll. Out come these long-haired dudes with telecasters, denims, and they go, here we go and here we go. I just went, yeah, you know, and Prince Charles said, Gee, why exactly did you pick these chappies, you know? And I said, I said, well, sir, they're like a cartoon of what rock and roll is. And he was going, yes, yes, wonderful, sir. You know, and he was trying to clap on the beat, but couldn't. Once they were on, once they were doing rocking all over the world, that was it. We're off and running straight from the start. The moment came when the rats, the guys came and said, we're on. What? My back had been killing me for a lot of the time. As you do, Bowie was massaging my back. I was lying on a flight case backstage and Bowie was deep massaging my back, you know? And the band said, come on. So I walk out on stage and you see me sort of walking like, you know, a bit hunched. And I'd been watching the other bands and thrilling to them, but it was like at a distance. And suddenly I was doing my job. I was with these guys I'd known for all my life. And the noise from the crowd, like we'd done huge gigs, but the noise from the crowd was overwhelming. There's a picture of me turning around to Johnny Fingers, the piano player, and going, what? That was the only time did really pop nerves hit me. But then we were going and we did Rat Trap and we did something else. And then we did I Don't Like Mondays. When you're singing, you're not really alert to the words. You're alert to the sense of the song when you wrote it. But suddenly my foreconscious was aware that my subconscious was going to throw me the line from I Don't Like Mondays. The lesson today is how to die. And it pulled me up sharp, the whole madness of this moment. Because the lesson today was exactly that. And I'd written that six years before or something. And it pulled me up so that I stopped dead in my tracks. I just held up my hand. The band, they just stopped on the beat. It was odd, I thought, but I want to absorb this moment because it will never, ever happen again. And I slowly looked around the entire stadium from right to left. And my dad, there he was with the future King of England and this crowd and my mates in the band. And plus, probably, probably in truth, every single person I'd ever said hello to in my life was watching that moment. Everyone. And that was weird, really weird. I hadn't realized that I'd said I've just realized today is the best day of my life. I didn't know I said that, but it was. I mean, without question, despite all the fear and everything. I've just realized today is the best day of my life. At one point, 
I was in the commentary booth with David Hepworth. It was my turn to do the next link. And Brian Adams went down from Philadelphia. In other words, the signal went down from Philadelphia. And I had to fill. It's not surprising we've had a technical problem when you consider the scale of this operation. But we're going to be returning to uh, Brian Adams in Philadelphia as soon as is humanly possible. He was just beginning to perform his song for Famine Relief in Africa, Tears Are Not Enough, which when recorded... Now, filling live ad-lib to uh, an audience when you didn't know how long you had to talk for is quite a demand. But fortunately, I had known that Brian Adams had worked on the Canadian equivalent of the Band-Aid single with his co-writer Jim Valance. It was called Tears Are Not Enough. I knew he'd been on the record. And I asked also for donations, as we'd been doing throughout the day. By post, you can make your donation to the Live Aid Appeal. So I just yapped until finally the signal came up again. When Brian Adams was back up on screen, the producer, Michael Appleton, said, well done, Paul. Uh, only problem, we had a complaint from Russia. You mentioned American Express. Well, that's frankly a minor problem from my point of view. <laughs> it's just the fact that we kept the thing rolling. We're going now back to America and Brian Adams. Hello, world! This is the summer of 69. You're obviously Queen, which no one expected, took the roof off. Well, there was no roof, but I mean, you know. But everyone felt that they'd gone over and above. They just felt that they had. That was a real debate about Queen, because at first, nobody wanted Queen on the bill. It was my idea to put them on. And then, of course, I thought about which acts would work well and when. And I realised if I put Queen on, and there's always a lull period during an all-day concert, because they usually the crowd gets there, the gates open around 12, concert starts wine-ish. By about five, people get pretty tired. And they have a lull period, and it starts to rebuild up to the finale of the headliners. Well, with us, every act that played was a headliner in their own right. And I just felt if I put Queen on in that kind of low period, they will really wake the audience up. Little did I know how much they did wake the audience up because they were, as everybody knows, they were just unbelievably amazing. The amazing thing about Live Aid was there could be no rehearsal. Clever groups like Queen did book rehearsal space elsewhere, but nobody could rehearse their act at Wembley. And the broadcasters could not rehearse their show because there was no show to rehearse. I was very proud that everybody came through. Nobody blew it, even though the tension on us was remarkable. And the performances were super... I mean, nearly all the guys who played that day, and I know lots of them, just said, you know, we were really nervous, but, you know, it just kicked off for us. Brian May... None of those people in that stadium had bought tickets to see us because we weren't on the bill when they bought their tickets. So we're going out to an audience which is not really a Queen audience and we had no idea what was going to happen. So to see all the, the life happening, you know, and 
They put their hands together for Gaga and uh, and We Will Rock You. It was an incredible buzz. I think it was just in my memory another show, and it was a bit special. But I didn't think we played particularly well. But looking at it now, I I can see why people got excited because we were very much kind of living on the edge, and it was an extraordinarily energetic moment for us. So seeing it again and seeing it brought to life, it's it's made me realise what an incredible moment that was. The intuition that pop music was indeed the global common language as opposed to English. And that was important because it goes the sense of the music and what it was being played for that day took on a political importance. So how politically important are Queen? Not at all. But if they're playing at this event and what it's for, then that becomes deeply political because billions watched it. You've got to go back to the mid-80s. And in the middle of all this notion of that there is no such thing as society, selfishness is okay type culture, this spaceship landed called Live Aid, which said we do have obligations to others unknown to us. If we do nothing, we are complicit. You've got to get your head around the extremity of the situation that we were seeing on TV, how people felt about that. And this thing landed and said, I don't think so. The money out of your pocket. Don't go to the pub tonight. Please stay in and give us the money. There are people dying now. So give me the money. And here's the numbers. The whole fundraising effort really took off when Bob finally went upstairs to the BBC uh, broadcast and started yelling at everybody to say, give us your money. And suddenly the money came pouring in. That was pretty amazing. We had teams of people on phones just literally taking pledges. W, please don't send any cash. Now, the phone numbers in which you can respond instantly uh, in the north should be... Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to London, to Wembley and Live Aid. Will you meet and greet David Bowie? About three days prior to Live Aid, I'd sat with Bowie in Harvey's office and David wanted to know what did I want him to do. I said, listen, before we go on, I've just been handed this film by CBC, Canadian Broadcasting. The journalist covering the famine couldn't show these pictures because they're pornographic in effect. It was the pornography of poverty. And I showed it to David. And seeing the images of these people in the sump of human destitution, Bowie started crying. And he just said, I want to introduce this film. And I said, we can't show this. BBC will never show it. And he says, I want to introduce this film. I said, David, please, I need you to do those songs. And he goes, I'm doing the three songs, I'm introducing this or I'm not playing. So I don't have an option. Bowie does Heroes, the whole crowd are with him. They were heroes just for one day. And he just says, Lest we forget while we're here, I'd like to introduce a video made by CBC Television. The subject speaks for itself. Thank you. Good night. Please send your money in. And there you see young Britain of 1985, and they're ecstatic with the day and what they're involved in. 
and the screens come on and then you see these images. And suddenly you see, as I say, these flowers of Great Britain wilting in the sun and the misery of others. And literally the smiles fade gradually, the girls slide off their boyfriend's shoulders and the people are just dumbstruck by the horror. And that's when the phone lines all over the world collapsed. The moment came when people fully understood what this was for. The music was only the Pied Piper gathering you around the global electronic hearth of the television. Alison Moyer. My agent had called up and said, there's a thing Live Aid, would you like to do a set? And I said, oh, I haven't got a band together at the moment, you know. I said, well, yeah, they also looked after Paul Young, would you like to come sing a song with Paul Young? Yeah, sure, come and sing. In my head, it was going to be at Wembley Arena, which I'd headlined there a few times, and uh, and then they were saying, like, we're going to pick you up in a helicopter. I'm thinking, what do you need to get in a helicopter to go to Wembley Arena from? Where are you going on? I don't know, you know, down the road, what are you going on about? And then there was this helicopter, which I'd, I got in and I was put in with David Bowie and Bono. I realised as we were flying over, oh, this is not Wembley Arena, this is Wembley Stadium. The helicopter landed and we'd chatted and they were really nice blokes and got out and then I saw Roger Daltrey waving. I'm doing that thing thinking, who, you know, that looking behind your back, who, who's here? And, and, and then there's Freddie Mercury blowing me kisses and it was, it was just Stella Street backstage it was the the most bizarre thing and then kind of going out onto this stage you know my myopia helps because I couldn't see very far you know and it was bonkers Martin Kemp it was one of those moments you know when you do something it really only becomes important in retrospect you know usually but Live Aid was one of those moments that we all knew how important it was that day as it was happening and there's not many times in my life that I've experienced that you know, that you know you're working on something that's historical right at that, right that very point on that day. You knew when you were on stage, this is like a seminal moment. Later, Billy Connolly comes out on stage and he's holding a piece of paper. He said, I've just got the news that 95% of all the television sets on earth are tuned to this concert. Those things stay with you. God bless you, you're the heroes of this concert. While the show was going on, we worked out what the finale was going to be, who was going to do what and whatever, people going on stage. It was great because George Michael pulled me onto stage and made me sing with him and it was really nice. And that was highly, highly emotional. When we saw the pictures of Madonna on the screen at Wembley, and we knew that the show in America had kicked off and was really working, then I could start to chill out. You know, that's just how it went. It was of the moment. It was something completely different. No one had ever done a simultaneous broadcast and live as well between the UK and America. No broadcast television had ever given so much time to music. No one had ever done a live broadcast of that nature. So everything was a first. It was one of those moments that I think we'll never forget. I think it changed the face of music, how people work together. I think it changed the face of charity, you know, how we, how we deal with charity, how we realise that entertainment can be a big part of charity. And it changed the way of how we listen to music and how we enjoyed live music. 
Because before that, you know, bands weren't playing big stadiums. The whole live scene just exploded. And that was all due down to Live Aid. It changed the face of everything. In essence, it didn't mean anything significant musically, but politically, it had a vast impact. I mean, vast, because with one and a half billion people, we had access, as I said, to policymakers. That's not what music is meant to do, but you can use its popularity to do it. And it took 20 years, and then we get to Live 8, which really changed politics, properly, properly, properly changed politics. It was far bigger, with double 3.2 billion and a thousand artists in nine capital cities. We eliminated third world debt from the poorest countries. We doubled aid. We're still giving money out today. I signed a cheque for a project in Ethiopia for school league, so we're still at it. So it's a pretty extraordinary ride. So Band Aid continues because last year alone, Live Aid made one million pounds last year, last year. So what happened on that day reverberates. When I got home that morning at 5.30 and my PA was still watching repeats because he'd videoed the whole thing, I thought to myself, well, that's the highlight of my career. That's the highlight of all of our careers. And it all came down to the inability of anybody to say no to Bob Geldof. It's the incredible thing. One man's will was just so strong that he bullied that event into existence. Bob Geldof just had the personality and charisma to make everybody say yes. When there was nothing in it for any of them, it was just the idea of helping starving children. And I was right. It was the highlight of my career. And it was the highlight of all of our careers. I'm just glad we were all there. And at the end of it, I remember Bob and I sitting on stage with an empty stadium with litter everywhere and thousands of volunteers going around with bags starting to pick all the litter up. Just looking out at the end of the drum riser, I was absolutely exhausted so was Bob and we looked at each other and he kind of said to me is that it and I said yeah I think so it was a sense of relief more than anything else from Bob and I and I think a sense of euphoria and it was only then about two o'clock in the morning that I suddenly thought we'd done something special so Sunday passed I was I slept late because I'd been up all night watching America on Monday I went up to the King's Road in Chelsea. There was about five banks on the King's Road, all down the King's Road. And there were queues of people everywhere. And I thought, what's going on? And of course, what happened is, on the night, we knew we'd made 15 to 17 million quid. We were like, yeah, you know. Of course, what happened in the queues, people had donated a fiver, which was a lot in 1985, or 10 quid. But when the queues, they were talking, say, how much did you give? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm giving 10 quid. Really, I'm giving 20. Yeah, okay, I, I better do 20. So by the end of Monday, we were way north of $100 million, which in 1985 was insane, you know? And so really the needle moved. Really we could do big things with that, which we did. That 
thanks to Bob Geldof, Live Aid organiser, Harvey Goldsmith, promoter at Live Aid, Paul Gambaccini, broadcaster at Live Aid, and contributions from Live Aid performers such as Martin Kemp, Alison Moyer and Brian May. Don't forget to rate and subscribe if you enjoyed the podcast and make sure you share I Was There with friends. I'm Sophie Kay and this was an Absolute Radio production. Next time on I Was There, gigs that changed the world. 45 years ago, one gig marked reggae's defining moment in Britain. With it brought optimism, love and a music to unite. And so by the time then when he returned and played the Lyceum, wow, man, it was unbelievable. This was serious, conscious, revolutionary music. Everybody who was there felt they were at the center of the world. The Messiah had returned, if you know what I'm saying, to deliver the message. There was absolute pandemonium. It's Bob Marley and the Wailers at the Lyceum Theatre.